Uh, this morning, we are back in uh, chapter 16 of John's Gospel. We're going to be starting with verse 16. So John 16, 16 is where we're starting. Um, we're going to go through verse 24. And as you're getting ready, just a, a, a you know, that, that normal context reminder thing that I do for you guys. Uh, in the passage last week, Jesus told the disciples that it was going to be to their advantage that he went away. And I told you last week, if you were paying attention, that when he was talking about his going away, in that case, I don't believe he was talking about his death. I think he was talking about his ascension and returning to the Father. Uh, and we're going to see that a little bit more today. And, and the other thing is, he said it was going to be to their advantage that he was going away because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. The, the coming of the Holy Spirit is what enables us to do what Jesus has told us, commanded us, directed us to do. The Holy Spirit is what gives us the power to do what he tells us to do. So this morning, we're going to be looking a little bit closer at his departure and his desire for the disciples, not just the 12 or the 11 at this point, um, but us as well, to live a joy-filled life. That's the key this morning. I want you to focus on that word joy, okay? Because that's something that uh, I think the church misses a lot of opportunity on. So I'm going to invite you all to stand for our passage this morning. I'm going to read John 16, 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now... But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, and that word joy jumps out over and over and over and over again in this time where Jesus is talking to the disciples. Father, I pray that we would understand what it means to have joy in this world. Uh, this, is, this is something that we struggle with all the time, Father, and I pray that we would understand what your word says. Help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, 
Jesus was talking, and he says this, this phrase, a little while you'll see me no longer, again a little while and you will see me. And the disciples didn't understand. Um, and, and to be honest with you, reading it, be perfectly honest, most of us don't understand it either. All right? Um, they expanded their question, not just about the, the little while part, a little while you'll see me in a little while and you will not see me, or you will not see me and then you will see me. They expanded their question to include that idea of Jesus going to the Father. But we'll talk about that in a little while. That was to see if any of you are paying attention. Get it? That whole in a little while thing? Okay. That kind of morning. All right. So, um, a little bit of context, a little bit of setting. Jesus is having this discussion with the disciples when? The upper room. Okay. When? What time? What time of the week? Day of the week? Thursday. According to the traditional church calendar, Thursday, the night before the crucifixion. Um, Jesus says, the first, a little while and you will see me no longer. In this context, he is talking about the, the time after he's arrested and before the resurrection. Okay? Because with the exception of Peter and John, the rest of the disciples split. They take off. They run away. They hide back in the upper room. They lock themselves in. Peter and John follow him at least to the trial when Peter denies him three times and then Peter splits. John, we know, sees him at the cross because of that whole statement that Jesus makes to Mary, mother, this is your son, right? So we know that John sees him up to the point of his death. But then they don't see him for three days, <laughs> according to the Jewish understanding of days. This is why the, there are some people who have a real hard time with the, the calendar here, because if Jesus died on Friday and then he rose Sunday morning, well, that's only like 48 hours. Right. But that's only 48 hours. That's only two days. But the way the Jews count the calendar, he died Friday before sunset, so the, the next day, Saturday, started at sunset through Sunday morning, which started at sunset, that's the third day. So, anyways. And then he says that after that little while, they would see him for a little while. So he's, he's talking about that period after the resurrection and prior to his ascension. Now, there's some important stuff about this. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. This is unusual for me. I normally spend time laboring the point, but, but really verses 16 through 19 are Jesus making the statement, the disciples asking about the statement, Jesus understanding that they're asking about the statement, then Jesus asking them if they're asking about his statement. Okay? So lather, rinse, repeat. This is a very important statement. Moving on. In verse 20, though, he says, and this is, this is really important, 
And I can tell you it's really important because he starts with that phrase, truly, truly. Or if you're, you're one of the, the, uh, the old English type folks, verily, verily. Cause everybody uses that in common discourse today, right? For that matter, does anybody use the word discourse today? Um, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, the Hebrew word that he's saying there would have been amen. Truth. But when he says it twice, he is proclaiming it to be true truth. That sounds silly to us because if something is truth, it's truth. But he is, he's foot stomping the point. He's kicking the podium on this, that this is the true truth, that he is being as honest with them as is possible to be. This is a fact. And he says, you will not see me and you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What a depressing idea that the disciples are going to be weeping and mourning and and just tore up because their rabbi, their master, their, their mentor, the one that they have committed themselves to for the last three years, this man that they love dearly is going to be dead, and he says, and the world is going to rejoice. Wow. That's... That's just, that's hard to wrap our heads around. Now, I'll be honest, there were probably people in the crowd who even cried out for Jesus' death, but then when he died, they mourned, right? Um, probably not because of a sudden sense of who he was or what his death represented, but because here was a man who may or may not have committed a crime worthy of that kind of punishment, and yet he died in that excruciating manner. You, you got to remember that, that when the crowd is crying out, there is a, a bit of mob mentality going on here. People who get caught up in the tide of a mob do not often think about what's happening. They just get caught in the emotions and the, the literally the tide of the crowd. There were probably some who mourned just because it was the death of a person. Um, when Jesus says that the world is going to rejoice, he obviously was not talking about everybody in the world is going to rejoice at his death. He is talking about the, the world in that figurative sense, the sin nature that permeates man, the, the natural state of our rebellion against God that insists on being in charge. The reason that the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests were so opposed to Jesus, they may have said it was because they thought he was making himself to be equal with God, but really it was because he was threatening their autonomy. Because with the things that he was teaching, he was telling them that you can't work hard enough to be acceptable to God, no matter how righteous you may be in your actions, your life is still marked by unrighteousness. And there's nothing you can do to fix that. I saw an illustration online once that I thought was absolutely fantastic when it comes to the, the, the nature of sin in our life. You take a, a, a glass of pure, clean water, 
take an eyedropper and add one drop of raw sewage to that water. Now, no matter how much I tell you that I can put additives into that water to make it safe to drink, (laughs) I can see it right now. Y'all are like, "Mm, no. Uh Uh-uh. Not going to happen. Why? Because it's still dirty, right? There's still bacteria in it. There's still all of that. That's how our lives are. If there's one mark of sin in it, We can do as much good stuff as we want, but it's still marked by that sin. It's still stained. It's still dirty. It's still polluted. And so Jesus says that the world that doesn't want to follow God, that doesn't want to understand who God is and what God requires, because that requires us to give up our righteousness and accept somebody else's, is going to rejoice at his death. And the disciples are going to be sorrowful. I really, really, really like this example that he gives. Um, I, I like it because we've got four kids, and I understand it. He he says, it's like a woman who gives birth. What's that? Exactly, Right. Okay, well, see, it's one of those things that as a guy, I have wondered about and wondered about and wondered about and wondered about because you hear women talk about just exactly how miserable the childbirth process is, how horrible it is, how painful it is, how excruciating it is. And even though if you look at Facebook and you see all these young ladies who are pregnant and they're all joyful and happy and bubbly and all this other kind of stuff, I lived with one for four different times, okay? And... and. Bubbly and joyful and happy lasted until, oh, I wish this kid would get off of my back. My sciatic is killing me. I've got to pee every 10 minutes. It's All that bad stuff starts to happen, right? And then we go through the labor and delivery process or a C-section, and there's pain, and there's pain, and there's pain, and there's hospital stays, and and, and then you have the... And yet, somehow, the human species has continued to reproduce. How does that work? Because I'll, t- I'll be honest with you. I have done a couple of things in my life that I consider to be very painful things. Okay? Breaking my finger. Just a, a small bone, a small break. One of the most excruciating things in my life I have ever experienced. I don't want to do that ever again. Ever, 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 ever. Not, not, not even a little bit. And yet a woman who goes through all of this misery for, let's say, at least the last six months of the pregnancy, all the way up through delivery, give it six months, and they do this whole crazy, man, I got baby fever again. You know, as a young man that, that went, <laughs> after Alyssa was born, and the discussion started happening, My thought process is women are all out of their minds. They're crazy. And Jesus says it here. He says when a woman gives birth, she is sad. She's in anguish. She is heartbroken. There's a measure of that because all of those associated emotions that go along with the pregnancy, 
All of those things where she's walking around and she's holding, she's like, oh, the baby moved. Which lasts right up until, oh, the kid's got his toes in my ribs. All of that stuff is over with. So there's sadness. And then there's the hormonal changes that happen that just keep happening because biology, there's all of that stuff. And then no matter how excruciating the childbirth is, in most cases, now we are fallen humanity, we do have illnesses and that kind of stuff, postpartum depression is a real thing, I'm not discounting that, but in most cases, there is a sense of joy that overwhelms the pain. There's a sense of of just untouchable gladness because of that child. And so... The memory of the pain, the memory of the anguish, the memory of the discomfort, the memory of all of those unpleasant things fades away until the next time she gets pregnant. And then it only takes two months because all of a sudden those memories come back. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's been a while since I felt that. Okay? This is what Jesus is talking about when he says that the disciples are going to be sorrowful. They're going to have pain. They're going to have anguish. When Jesus dies, it's going to hurt. Now, there are people, there are historians, there are scholars who have gone through Jesus' death account in Scripture and have said that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Okay, now this is one of the, the, when I was a very young Christian, I read a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he deals with what they call the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus, hanging on the cross, did not actually die. He just passed out from all the pain. And so when they took his body down and put him in the tomb, because of the cool, refreshing air in the tomb, he revived and was able to push the stone out of the way. Okay, now that takes way more faith than I've got. Because you have this guy who was, number one, beaten within an inch of his life, probably to the point where the muscles and the internal organs along his back were visible as he was carrying the cross piece for the cross to the place of his execution. He then had spikes driven into, whether it's his hand or his wrist, which there's evidence for both, and into his feet, probably the joint where his ankles and his legs come together, Right? He has, anybody understand the major blood vessels that are located in those locations? Okay? Then you have the excruciating pain of hanging by those nails on a cross. Okay? The, the process of execution on a cross is a process of suffocation. Because as you hang like this, your lungs cannot expand and contract fully. And the respiration process forms water. That's, that's one of the things that we expel. That's why when it's cold out like today, you can breathe on a window and it fogs up because there's water vapor in your breath. Well, that water doesn't all get expelled, so it builds up in the lungs. And so you drown, hanging. So what would happen is you've got this person, and, and by the way, they don't put them up like this. They make sure the knees are flexed and the arms are up here so that the victim can then push as bad as that sounds, with their legs to expand their lungs out and take some breaths. 
So a death from crucifixion could take 9 to 12 hours. Okay? So here's Jesus with his internal organs exposed along his back, hanging by these pegs, suffocating to death. And then, let's say he did pass out, right? So they come around to be merciful. Scripture tells us they come around to be merciful to break the legs of the prisoners to hasten their death. So what they would do is they'd take this large stone mallet and they would break the shin bones of the people hanging on the cross because then they couldn't push themselves up. That's merciful, right? <laughs> It'd make them die quicker. So as they're hanging there, the, the, the Roman comes up to the first guy and breaks his legs. And he walks up to Jesus and he says, oh, this one's dead already. And he walks over to the second guy and breaks his leg. Okay? Jesus is dead already. The Roman soldier standing at the foot of the cross judged that Jesus was already dead. And just to make sure, he puts the hammer down and picks up a spear and sticks it underneath the rib cage, penetrating the diaphragm, probably hitting the lung and the liver, and then puncturing, at the very least, the pericardial sac causing the blood and water to gush forth from Jesus' side. But Jesus didn't die. Okay? And then they took him down. Now, when, when we're told that Nicodemus, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and it was Nicodemus, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that took the body and prepared it for burial, right? When we're told that, how did they prepare the body for burial? They wrapped it up like a mummy. Okay, tightly with cloth. And with that cloth, they prepared, uh, I think, like a five-gallon jug of lotion. Various herbs and spices and perfumes and oils and, and whatnot. And they very quickly, in between each layer, so they'd wrap a layer, and then they would take handfuls of this lotion and slather the body in it. And then wrap a layer, and they'd take handfuls of this lotion and slather the body in it to help with the scent of decay and so on and so forth, right? So think paper mache just with cloth. So Jesus is wrapped head to toe in a body cast. After the whole crucifixion process, after the whole getting almost beat to death process, all of this, but he wasn't dead. Now, how's he able to breathe? Okay? All right? Now, they put him in a cave, wrapped head to toe, you know, maybe like this, right? He can't, his, his diaphragm can't move. He's got a hole in his side. He's got all the muscles exposed on it, all this stuff. He's like this. And then they put a two-ton rock in front of the tomb. That rock is cut in the shape of a disc, and it's in a groove that runs downhill so that the bottom of the groove is in front of the entrance to the tomb. The theory is that Jesus woke up, unwound himself, and then pushed that rock uphill to escape from the tomb. And oh, by the way, outside, there were guards. Now, there's two different theories about the guards. Some people say that they were Roman soldiers. Some people say that they were temple guards, okay? If they were Roman soldiers, 
The only way Jesus could have got past them would have been if they were asleep. If they had fallen asleep on the job, as the story goes, at the, at, after the resurrection, when the guards go to the priest and say, uh, the body's not there, what do we do? And the priest say, don't worry, we got you covered. Tell them you fell asleep. Okay? If the Roman guards had fallen asleep, that would have been an execution by beheading. If they were temple guards who had fallen asleep, that would have been an execution by burning. They would have lit their robes on fire. Okay? I don't think the guards fell asleep. At least not a natural sleep. So, Jesus is talking here, and I've got to drag myself back to this, this process. Jesus is telling them their grief is going to be real because his death is going to be real. It's a real thing. He really died. But then he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Just like that woman giving birth who is in so much pain and agony and all that other kind of stuff during the childbirth process, hear that glorious sound? It's a furnace running. (laughs) And there's warm air too. That woman, when that baby is handed to her, all that pain, gone. Jesus says when the resurrection happens, when they see him again, all that pain is gone. It's gone. It's, it's vanished. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. But more than that, Look at verse 22. He says, So also you have sorrow now. He understands that they're starting to get bothered by this whole, I'm going to go and be executed thing, right? You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Now look at the last part of verse 22. And no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Now, I don't think that Jesus is limiting this just to the 11, just to the, the, the disciples that then we know as apostles. I don't think that's what he's saying here. He is talking about our joy in knowing him. I really want to beat on this point for a little while, so you're going to have to deal with it. Granted... My experience is not all that broad. I have only been, I have only been a believer now for 20 years. Only. I have not been across the the continent. I have not been in Europe. I have not been in Asia. I have not been, well, I have been in Asia, but it was in an American setting. So, um, but based on my experience, I would say that most of the church in the West, so Western Europe, so we're talking about uh, everything west of Russia, okay? Um, so France, Germany, Italy, uh, all those little countries in there, Luxembourg and, and so on and so forth, Sweden, Denmark, Spain, uh, Portugal, all of that in the United States and parts of Central and South America. 
we've lost our grip on that joy. Jesus says nobody can take it from us. But we have lost that joy. We don't sense it anymore. We don't pay attention to it anymore. Especially, now this is where my experience can speak because this is someplace that I have lived, especially in the United States. Especially since the mid-1980s. There was a change in the church in the mid-80s. There was a change in the the, the way the church interacted with the, the state when the church threw in with a political party. The religious right, back in the 80s, led by Jerry Falwell, first chancellor of Liberty University, where I had my bachelor's and master's degrees from. What happened then was a intermingling of things that in and of themselves are not bad, but when they get intermixed, it waters everything down. And that is an intermingling of faith and patriotism and politicism. When you mix those three things together, all three of them get watered down, especially faith. Um, since Probably since the, the early 90s, Joy in the church in the United States has been almost non-existent. Um, it might still be there, but it doesn't show up when we talk to people. It doesn't show up when we interact with people. It doesn't show up in any kind of discussion, whether that be in person or on social media or any kind of media, television, radio, it doesn't matter. Joy has been replaced with bitterness and anger. All over the place with bitterness and anger. Now, if our faith is supposed to lead us to joy, how have we done this? How have we gotten bitterness and anger instead of joy? Well, that's that intermingling that I was talking about. It's hard to be joyful when your faith is tied around your patriotism. Because faith and patriotism are mutually exclusive. I'm not saying a faithful person can't be a patriot. I mean, really, come on, think about who's talking right here. I spent 20 years in the Air Force. I am patriotic. I stopped my car when I hear the national anthem playing on base. I, I stop my car when they play to the colors in the morning in Reveille because that's what we're called to do. I render the appropriate honors if I'm standing outside when the national anthem plays. It doesn't matter whether I'm on base or off base. I've even been known when I'm standing on my back patio, if I can hear retreat from my backyard, which on a clear day I can because the bass speakers are really loud, I have been known to stop and stand at attention on my back patio during the playing of the national anthem. Patriotism is not bad, but my patriotism is not tied to my faith because my faith tells me I am a sojourner in this world. I am in dual citizenship status. My primary citizenship is not to the United States. 
Now, according to the United States government, it is. It's what my birth certificate says. what my passport says. But that's because Jesus doesn't issue me a passport. <laughs> my citizenship is with him. And when I start living like my citizenship here is more important, then it's easy to lose my joy when things in this world don't go the way I think they ought to. And I don't care what party you're from. I don't care what your patriotism looks like. When things don't go your way, it is very easy to be bitter and angry. Jesus says our joy is not supposed to be able to be taken away from us. What he doesn't say is we can, we can and we do often take that joy and, and set it off to the side on our own. I'm going to set my joy over here, and I'm going to be working over here for a while. Why is this important for us? The joy and the peace that we have are characteristics that cause us to interact with the world in a different way. Y'all catch that? The joy and the peace that we are supposed to possess cause us to interact with the world in a different way. It's really hard for me to demonstrate the love that Jesus calls us to have for other people when I am angry and bitter over their politics. It is really hard for me to demonstrate the love that Jesus tells me to demonstrate when I am bitter over the way a person responds to our nation's flag. When I allow that bitterness and that anger to overwhelm my joy and my peace, I hamstring myself in my ministry. I know because of the rate at which you guys have supported ministries like the Women's Resource Center, which by the way, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Today is that day on the, the uh, at least the Western church calendar that we typically observe sanctity of human life and we talk about the evil of abortion. And I agree, abortion is is heinous. It's, it's horrible. Okay? But, let's talk about Christians. Because there are people who have genuine faith in Christ who are not 100% opposed to abortion in all cases. And I have seen Conservative evangelicals say that a person can't be a believer if they say that abortion is okay in any circumstance. Who am I to judge their faith? Right? Pick any other sin. A person who's, who, who's, who's a homosexual cannot be a Christian. Really? How about this one? A person who is a glutton cannot be a Christian. Because, you know, God views all those sins as sin, right? Now let's talk about how unbelievers deal with things. If a person doesn't have faith in Christ, 
and they happen to be of a different political persuasion or a different worldview than you do, right? And the only place they encounter you is on social media or via Twitter or in an impersonal setting, like maybe they overhear you at a restaurant. And the only thing that they hear is complaints about and the ungodliness of their particular persuasion, just exactly how do you think they're going to react if you decide to get up from your table and share Jesus with them? I don't want to hear that. Not from you. Because all you're spewing is hatred. It is hard to respond to a crisis in our lives with grace and peace that reflect a deep-seated faith in God and His plan when we get our bridges in a bunch because of a situation that's outside of our control. We're supposed to be the people who respond, as Jesus says, give thanks in all things. Not just good things, bad things. Give thanks in all things. That's what's going to cause people to come to us. Peter says that we need to be ready to, to give a defense for the hope that is within us, right? How are people going to know that I have hope if the only thing that I do is rant and rave and go off the deep end complaining about things that I have no control over? Who's going to come up to me and say, man, how can you have so much hope? <laughs> no, they're going to come up to me and say, man, I thought you were a Christian. How can you be so ugly? I'm not saying that we need to be disengaged from the world or disengaged from, from the nation's political process, or, and I'm not saying that patriotism is bad. I'm saying we need to remember its, its proper place in our lives. Jesus says that joy cannot be taken away from us. But we sure have done a good job of pushing it off to the periphery in our lives. There's that kid song that's sung around VBS time, all the I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Right? Or if you work at Walmart, you put dishwashing liquid in your buggy. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my cart. Right? Why is it that's only sung at VBS? Why is it only sung in a children's ministry? I'll tell you why. Because most of us don't live like we have the joy, 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 joy down in our heart. We need to regain that joy and that grace and that peace in our lives and let that be the filter through which our discussion and our speech and our thought process is washed through. This is one of those places where we need to disengage our autopilot and live on purpose. We need to pick the joy up off the shelf and put it back where it belongs. Now get off my soapbox. 
and go back to that part of the question that the disciples were asking about this Jesus going to the Father business. Jesus didn't answer their question about that. Jesus did not address it at all. I want us to think about it for just a second because it's important. Jesus has been talking about his impending death. Okay? Now, when we talk about a person dying, we know that there are two destinations that people can go, right? If you're a believer, you go where? Heaven. You ought to be, be with God forever. And if you're an unbeliever, you go to hell where you suffer God's punishment and wrath forever. Okay? The first century Jews did not have this worldview. They didn't understand the afterlife. Now, I've, I've talked about this before. What they had was a concept that I would call after death, not afterlife. Okay? They did believe in the persistence of the soul. When a person died, the physical part of them died, the spiritual part of them went to a place where the dead go. Okay? They called it Sheol. The souls who had been good or who had suffered during life would go to a place of rest. Not a place of reward, but a place of rest. You've already done enough, so just rest. The ones who had been particularly wicked would go someplace to receive punishment. But it wasn't like an active punishment. It was more like... They would go to Death Valley, where it was hot, it was dry, it was unpleasant, there was no refreshment, there was no shade, there was no water. It was a place of more physical torments, not necessarily active punishments. There was no wrath that they would go through, it was just, you beat everybody up in your life, so your soul is going to have to deal with getting beat up in death. For the most part, the idea that God would be associated with the place of the dead was completely outside of their thought process. You remember Peter's confession, his Caesarea Philippi confession? Jesus said, who, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? How did he describe God? Living, right? Not dead. You were the son of the living God. The only thing that God had to do with the place of the dead was creation. There was no active punishment by God. There was no active rewarding by God. God created a place where the good souls could rest and the bad souls couldn't. That was the Jewish thought process. And so when Jesus told them that he was going to be crucified... Okay, Roman crucifixion resulted in one thing, a dead body. So Jesus is going to die. Where is his soul going to go? To the place of the dead. And now all of a sudden he's talking about returning to his father. His father is the living God. Wait. <laughs> I have this picture over here, and Jesus is saying this over here. And there's no correlation. They don't match. They don't mix. They don't... It doesn't line up with their understanding. Jesus is talking about returning to his father. 
he is not necessarily, and I'm, I don't want to be mysterious here, I don't want to be dogmatic about it, something that the Bible doesn't really speak much about. When he's talking about returning to the Father, he's talking about his ascension. Not necessarily his death. Now I know there's, there's a whole lot of thought, well, what happened those three days that Jesus was in the grave? Here's what the Bible tells us. He was in the grave. Okay? If you've heard that he descended into Hades and ministered to the spirits that were in the place of the dead, that's in the Apostles' Creed. That is not in Scripture. Okay? We don't know. We know he was dead. His body was in the grave. We know that when he spoke to the thief on the cross, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise which seems to indicate to us that he ascended to the Father at that point. Okay? Ultimately, though, when he's talking about returning to the Father, he's talking about his ascension. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Right? And if it weren't so, I would have told you that you're on your own. But I didn't. I told you I'm preparing a place for you. Now, I'm going to close real quick here with verses 23 and 24 because this is another passage that is very badly misunderstood. Jesus says, in that day, in that day when he returns, when he's resurrected, before he ascends, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. There is a problem with this passage in the way we understand it. Okay? It's almost like we have taken that to, to mean Jesus is saying that if we don't say the words in Jesus' name, then the prayer is not going to get answered. Right? Can you imagine? We're, we're laying out a prayer. We're praying according to God's will. We're praying for somebody's salvation. We're praying for somebody to be delivered from from an illness or something like that. We're praying for something, and we say, Amen. The whole time we're praying, God is packing up this this package of blessing to drop on us, and we say, Amen, but we forget to say in Jesus' name. And so God says, Oh, never mind. But we act that way, don't we? We almost superstitiously say, in Jesus' name. Like that's the magic token that we have to put into the God vending machine to get our prayer answered. This is not what Jesus is talking about. If you think about his teaching up to this point in the upper room, in, in chapter 12, when they go into the upper room, uh, sorry, in chapter 13, I think it is, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He demonstrates servant leadership by washing their feet, by, by cleansing them physically to demonstrate that he who would be the leader must be a servant. He has taught them about his death on the cross. He's announced the new covenant in his body and his blood. He's commanded them to demonstrate their discipleship by loving other people. He's told them about the importance of his commands living in them and permeating their lives and how that's going to be, number one, the source of their joy, and number two, the the key, basically, to having a prayer life that is fulfilled. If they abide in His commands and His commands abide in them, if you live doing the things that Jesus said, then God is going to honor your request because you're living according to His will. When Jesus says, 
asking in my name, he's talking about asking in the authority that he has. He's talking about asking in the position that he has, that, that position that he's delegating to the disciples. They're called apostles, which means one who is sent with authority. Whose authority? His. When we send an ambassador to another country and they write a treaty with that country and they sign that treaty, whose authority are they acting in? The American people's authority, right? We delegate that authority to them by approving their position. Jesus' authority that he's delegating is the authority that God the Father granted him. The authority that he has by virtue of who he is in the Godhead. God will not grant a request that is counter to his will. I can pray and I can put the words in Jesus' name as many times as I want in a prayer for a winning lottery ticket to be in my mailbox when I get home today. I really don't think that's God's will for my life because I haven't bought a winning lottery ticket. I haven't bought a lottery ticket at all. If our requests are counter to God's will or counter to God's nature, the answer we're going to get is no. If we are asking for things out of season, the answer we're going to get is wait. It's not time yet. But if we're living according to God's will, if we're submitted to the Holy Spirit and we're doing what Jesus commands us to do, when we ask for something, it's going to be in God's time, more often than not, as we grow in our discipleship. And God's answer is going to be, okay. And Jesus says that that is the key to perfect Joy, that that last word in verse 24 where he says, your joy may be full, your version may say, your joy may be complete. The word complete, the word full, is the word perfect. If we're going to have perfect joy in our lives, then we need to start living according to Jesus' will in our lives. 